All right. Um, today we are um, beginning chapter 50 of Genesis. It was um, three years ago next month that we started chapter one of Genesis. <laughs> it's been three years, if you can believe that. So, uh, no, actually, I think Ronnie studied under me. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was actually teaching very long Bible studies before Ronnie was saved. <laughs> I think that's fairly accurate. That may not be totally accurate. But at any rate, uh, uh, just uh, just by way of plan, last week I passed out some of these uh, preliminary study sheets for Romans. Does anybody need one of those? Uh, didn't get one of those? I'll just pass that out. And like I said, I may pass out another one next week. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, we will, uh, <coughs> Lord willing, uh, we have, uh, including today, we have two, uh, we have three weeks of Genesis left. We have today's study uh, on the first part of Genesis 50. Next week, we'll, Lord willing, we'll do the second part of Genesis 50. And then we'll have a concluding study. Kind of, We'll go back over and just kind of think and reflect on some of the things that we've learned uh, throughout the book of Genesis over the last three years. So it'll just kind of be a review and, and uh, hopefully you'll have a chance too to share a little bit about some of the things that you've glean from the book as we've gone through it so you can think about that and I will be gone for a week and Jim's going to fill in for me uh, that week and then when I return uh, Lord willing we will start uh, our study of the book of Romans so that's the uh, plan at this point and uh, last week we were looking at uh, the uh, last part of chapter 49 which included the second half of the blessings of Jacob's blessings of his sons and then Jacob's charge uh, to his sons regarding his burial and finally there at the end of the chapter uh, Jacob's uh, passing or death and uh, and as I said today we'll pick up with chapter 50 but uh, just kind of glancing down through uh, chapter 49 there the last half of the chapter what do you recall that we talked about last week. One of the things that kind of stood out to me is that when Jacob actually died, it doesn't say he died, it says he was gathered to his people. And what it comes to that is that it's not the end, we're gathered to our people. It's just really the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, that, I just think that's such a cool expression. And, and give us a totally different perspective of death than the world has. So, yeah, great. What else? It's just the telling and stuff they already know. Just repeating, you know. Okay. Okay. What else? Kind of the way describing one of them. One was a wolf, one was a serpent, one was a dove. Uh-huh. Wow. He uses a lot of illustrations from, from particularly the animal kingdom, but also from nature, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Why is he Why is he telling them all this stuff? And comfort 
and real, it could be 400 years before some of these are fulfilled. So, something to hang on to through the tough Right, exactly. God is giving them promises, things to anticipate, things to look forward to. So, as they're going through this 400 years of, of rough times in Egypt, they still have something they can look forward to and expect. And, and, and they can have confidence that God really is going to fulfill all these promises that He's made. So, Anything else? Okay. And, uh, I read Revelation 14, and I didn't see any tribes, and I got back to Revelation 7, but I can look at that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Good, great. Yeah, Jacob just kind of breaks out in a prayer there, right in the middle of these blessings and prophecies of the future, and he just breaks out in this prayer of anticipation and hope for seeing the Lord's salvation. And we mentioned... Uh, we mentioned that that use of the word salvation there is the is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is the word uh, from which we get the name of Christ, name Jesus, and uh, and it's really the, and it's the first time it's used in Scripture, uh, and it, it just it as we read it, it it gives us a it just causes us to think of the ultimate salvation that's coming ultimately in Christ. Well, let's go on uh, in uh, chapter uh, fifty then. Uh, he uh, in uh, in the passage we're going to look at today, I'd like to look at the first 14 verses, and it is a description of the of the uh, of the mourning for Jacob after his death and his this whole burial procedure, and it's uh, it's really a remarkable story. Uh, I don't think there's anything else like it anywhere else in Scripture. I, I can't think of any other uh, place in Scripture where there is such an elaborate discussion or narrative uh, of the mourning and, and burial of, a, of an individual. And, and this is particularly striking to me because we don't even get this with the patriarchs. We don't, we don't get this kind of a... Uh, later in, in chapter 50, uh, next week, we will look at the death and burial of Joseph. And we don't get any kind of a description like this of Joseph's death and burial. Uh, we don't get a description like this in chapter 35 when Isaac dies. It's very brief. It only takes a verse or two to describe uh, Isaac's death and burial. Uh, in chapter 25, with Abraham, the father of this whole thing, uh, it only gives uh, uh, four very brief verses that describe his death and his burial. Uh, so this is really a unique passage. And as you read it, you're kind of blown away, at least I am, uh, to use a use the vernacular. Uh, I am anyway, as I read this, uh, by just the magnitude and the majesty and the length of this thing. As you put the pieces of the puzzle together, it looks like it took them about three months to get this guy underground. And uh, so it's really a, a very elaborate process. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Why does the Holy Spirit take all this time and, and devote such a focus to the burial of Jacob and describe it in the terms that he does when he doesn't do that with anybody else anywhere in Scripture. So we'll, we'll think about that and consider that as we're going forward. Uh, 
And, and what I want to do is we'll read the passage. We'll read the 14 verses and then we'll just kind of go through and just talk about it a little bit, kind of get an understanding of the story. And then I just want to go back and think through about two or three or four different things that really stand out to me in the passage uh, that I think uh, can be instructive to us. So beginning in verse one of chapter 50, it says then Joseph. Well, let's begin in the verse before that, the end of chapter 49 says when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father and I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atid, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor added, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Azul Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus, his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for the along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Okay, well, just kind of talking through the story here a little bit and and, and pointing out a few things. Uh, we have, of course, at first Joseph's uh, response to his father's death. He falls on his father's face after he's died and, and weeps over him and kisses him. Uh, and so we see this remarkable love uh, between uh, Jacob and Joseph. And we've talked oftentimes about Jacob's love for Joseph. But here we see the, the reciprocal part of that. The other side of that, we see Joseph's great uh, passionate love for his father and how deeply moved he is by his father's death. And we'll come back and talk about that in just a bit. Uh, and then Joseph uh, commands the servants to embalm his father. And so they go through this embalming process. And one of the things that that's kind of striking to me about this whole narrative is how much focus is put 
upon the mourning of the Egyptians. There's actually, aside from what it says about Joseph, there's almost nothing at all said about the, the family's mourning for Jacob. But the, the emphasis of this whole remarkable narrative, the predominant emphasis, is on the mourning of the Egyptians. Okay, So they begin by embalming him, and there's some question as to why did Joseph have his father embalmed? Embalming uh, typically in Egypt had uh, profound religious connotations. It was uh, was done by a class of people who were trained specifically in that particular art. And I read about that art yesterday. I was reading about it. And I can assure you, you don't want to hear what I read. <laughs> it was pretty gruesome. But... But it was but there were people who were specifically trained, and these were generally priests who carried out the embalming process. Okay. Uh, Rick, yeah. Was that, was that just? I was thinking along that same line and started wondering: Is that just the uh, upper echelon of royalty in Egypt that got involved in the preparation for the next life? I don't have an answer to that, but I've always understood it was the elite. Well, and that's how I've understood it. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that, and I think he fits into that yeah, path yeah. because of his son yes. Joseph. Yeah. But it is interesting here that it is not the priests who do the embalming, but it is Jacob's or Joseph's own servants who are physicians who do the embalming. And so there, some commentators suggest there that Joseph is wanting to some degree to distance this embalming process from the religious implications that would typically be uh, expected in Egypt. But, uh, and, but clearly, uh, Jacob fits in this category of the elite or the father or the patriarch of the elite, that sort of thing that you're talking about. Uh, uh, so, uh, he has an embalmed. The question is, why does he have an embalmed? It's not a Hebrew practice. The Hebrews would just bury him right away. And, and I think uh, possibly there's a couple explanations. One is just culturally, it was probably more acceptable to embalm him. But I think the other thing is you realize he's really not going to be put in the grave for about three months. So you probably want to take some kind of, some kind of preservative uh, process here to preserve the body till you can get him, uh, get him to Canaan and get him buried. So uh, that probably is part of the reason why he's embalmed. But he's embalmed, and so we begin to see right off the bat, we begin to see this, this heavy Egyptian influence in this whole process that's uh, going on with Jacob. Uh, it takes 40 days to accomplish the embalming process. Uh, and, but it says the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Uh, all the commentators I read think that those, those overlap. The 70 days includes the 40 days of embalming. But you see, uh, you see this, this ongoing nearly two-month period of mourning and weeping on the part of the Egyptians for Jacob. Not for Joseph. But for Jacob, and the question that comes to my mind and probably does to yours, why are the Egyptians mourning Jacob so much? Well, there's probably a couple reasons for that, and, and one obvious reason would be they love Joseph. Okay, and so it would be natural for them to want to to show to Joseph uh, their affection and their appreciation for him by entering into his grief for his father. Okay. But, but they're doing much more than would be customary for Joseph or for the Hebrews to do as far as mourning is concerned. And so I, I would suggest to you that 
with the strong emphasis that's given to us here in this passage on the mourning of the Egyptians, that it's far more than just the respect and deference to Joseph. But they really do keenly feel the loss of Jacob. And, uh, and, and that, of course, raises questions in our minds. You know, what, what influence did Jacob have on the Egyptians during those 17 years he was in Egypt? Uh, before he came into Egypt there uh, during the famine. He remained uh, through the remaining five years of the famine and lived another 12 years after that. So he had 17 years there. And I think the implication that I see in the passage is that, is that not only, of course, does Joseph have the profound influence that he has because of his position, but I think that it appears that Jacob also has gained a great deal of influence and respect on the part of the Egyptians. Part of that would be, we, we see that even initially in his first encounter, Jacob's first encounter with Pharaoh. Actually, the only encounter we have uh, a record of. He comes and has this encounter with Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh is very sensitive to Jacob's age. He says, how old are you? How long have you lived? And so there's that idea of respect for someone who is aged and, and uh, uh, respect for your elders and that type of thing. So I think some of that is some of that is reflected there uh, in, in the morning of the Egyptians, just that typical type of respect and admiration for someone who has attained an age like that. But I suspect, too, that that they recognize that that the benefits they have received from Joseph have ultimately come from Jacob. They have come from Jacob's training and raising up this man to be the kind of a man he was. And also there may have been some sense that that there was a blessing on the life of Jacob that had been passed down to Joseph and then that the Egyptians are partakers of. So uh, so those are just some things to think about in, in when, as we think about the Egyptian uh, influence there. Well, so they mourned for him for 70 days and then after that, uh, uh, Joseph uh, sends a message to Pharaoh through his household and that's kind of interesting here because uh, here we have Joseph not approaching Pharaoh directly and the question that comes up, why, you know, you know Pharaoh, uh, typically Joseph would have uh, complete access to Pharaoh, so uh, why in this case does he not personally approach Pharaoh? And uh, apparently the reason is because he's in mourning. And uh, with the Hebrews, when they're in mourning, they do not shave. They don't shave their face, they don't shave their head or whatever. And in Egyptian culture, you don't come before Pharaoh uh, with your head unshaved or your face unshaved. And so apparently just because he was in mourning at this time, he's just, he's not, uh, he, he, he doesn't have the appearance that would be appropriate to appear before Pharaoh. Uh, so he sends this message and he asks for Pharaoh's permission to fulfill the vow that he had made, uh, that he had sworn to his father. And, of course, Pharaoh uh, grants him permission. Uh, Joseph, of course, guarantees to Pharaoh that he will return and, and Pharaoh lets him go. So then they begin to put together this entourage. Who all is in this entourage that goes to Canaan? Yeah, it's, it's, this is an amazing entourage. It says, first it says, all of Pharaoh's servants. No wonder Joseph had to ask permission from Pharaoh. He's taking all of Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household. So he's taking all the elders of Pharaoh's household. 
He's taking all the elders of Egypt. So not just a Pharaoh's household, but all the elders of Egypt. Okay, so this is getting to be quite a quite a group here. Okay, I'm glad I didn't have to plan the logistics for this trip. Okay, so there's all of them. And then, of course, there's all of Joseph's household and there's all of the households of his brothers and all of Jacob's household. Okay, Uh, uh, so they're 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 pretty much taking everybody except for what? Okay, the little ones and their and their livestock, the, the the flocks and the herds. Okay, so we assume that if they're leaving the little ones, either the mothers of the little ones or their nurses or whatever are staying back. But primarily, it's the little ones and their way of living, their livestock is being left behind. Okay, other than that, everything's going. Okay, we're all going to we're all going to Canaan. Okay. And then kind of as the last thought, it throws in what's finally there in the last stuff. The chariots and horsemen, okay? So they're getting a military escort, okay? Now, I assume they're getting a military escort because they're taking all the leaders of Egypt. (laughs) And they don't want to risk all the leaders of Egypt going up to Canaan without some kind of protection. So so they take this military escort with them of, of chariots and horsemen that are going... Uh, that go with them to protect them and watch over them on the trip. So if you just happen to be on the King's Highway or on the Highway of the Philistines and you're headed down into you're headed down into Egypt to do business or whatever, and you encounter this funeral cortege, you know it's it's got to be a pretty amazing sight. <laughs> just imagine all these people. And the majesty that must have been associated with it as they travel up into Egypt. Now, it seems uh, that when they went to Egypt, that they didn't take the what, what later became known as the Highway of the Philistines, which travels along the Mediterranean, is really the shortest route into Canaan. But it appears they followed a route somewhat similar to the one that was followed during the Exodus when they went around the Dead Sea and came in. Uh, it came in north of the Dead Sea. It's not exactly clear, but that seems to be implied in the description because they come, it says, ultimately to the threshing floor at Tad, which is beyond the Jordan. And so when you read that, you would think, well, that would be pretty easy to figure out where that is, except that the phrase beyond the Jordan only tells you where it is if you know what the perspective of the person saying it is. And if he's on the west side of the Jordan, then obviously... The threshing floor of a pad is on the east side of the Jordan. But if he's speaking from the east side of the Jordan, then obviously it's on the west. And the sum of that means uh, is that we really don't know where it is. Okay, but it does appear to be in the land of Canaan. So apparently the perspective of the speaker, the narrator is from the east side of Jordan and the threshing floor is on the west side in the land of Canaan. And and I would suggest that because it speaks about the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, observing this mourning that goes on at the threshing floor of Atad, or Atad, or however you choose to say that. Uh, so they have this, uh, this mourning that takes place, and they do this for seven days before they go on to, uh, uh, to the cave to bury him. And... Uh, and, and I gather that the mourning that took place in Egypt was predominantly an Egyptian-style mourning 
and, and that this seven days of mourning that takes place at the threshing floor of Atad in the land of, presumably in the land of Canaan, was probably more of the Hebrew part of the mourning. Uh, I, I just kind of read that into it. it. I couldn't argue that dogmatically. Uh, but, but then they go on to the cave, uh, the cave of Machpelah, which is there by the Oaks of Mamre, which is uh, down towards the southern end of the Dead Sea uh, to the uh, uh, south southwest of the of the southern end of the Dead Sea, the Oaks of Mamre. It's a familiar place to us. We've encountered it many times in the life of Abraham and in the life of Isaac. Uh, this was kind of, if we could call any place their home besides Beersheba, uh, uh, this would be their home. Uh, they kind of fluctuate between Beersheba and the Oaks of Mamre. And, uh, and so this is where they go uh, to bury uh, to bury uh, Jacob. And uh, there's a cave there which Abraham purchased along with the field. He purchased it for a burial site from Ephraim, the Hittite, it says. And, and this is the place where uh, Jacob is taken to be buried. Apparently, uh, he had enlarged the cave or in some way dug out a chamber within the cave to bury Aaliyah, his wife, presumably, but certainly him, because in his words to Pharaoh, he mentions that in he mentions my grave, which I dug. OK, uh, so uh, apparently he has oh, during the years that he lived in Canaan, he had prepared this cave uh, further for uh, for the bur- for his own burial. Uh, so had apparently somehow enlarged it or dug it b- uh, deeper or bigger uh, to provide for his own burial and presumably also for the burial of Leah. And once all of this is done, uh, then uh, uh, Joseph and all the entourage and all the family returned to Egypt. And that's the story. Okay. And the question is, what is the significance of this story to us? What are the lessons that we learn from this story? I, I find it interesting sometimes that the Lord puts so much emphasis on something by devoting so much literary real estate to it. <laughs> and then he doesn't tell us what's significant about it. And so you have to stop and go, well, why did you do this? And, and, and one of the commentators that I was reading was pointing out how this is such an unusual story in Scripture. And he doesn't devote this kind of this kind of uh, narrative to Abraham's death or Isaac's death or even Joseph's death. And and so I I wrestled with that and I thought, why 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 does he do that? What what are the what are the reasons that the Holy Spirit has for devoting so much explanation to this? What's clearly a very remarkable event. And uh, and I and I thought of of. Uh, Several things that came to my mind in that regard. And one of them is that as we get to the end of Jacob's life, and we're going to leave Jacob now and we're going to go on and we're going to kind of finish this whole story of Joseph. And then in the next chapter, boom, we're going to be into the story of the Exodus. Okay? So we're leaving the whole story of Jacob. And, and as we think back on the life of Jacob, uh, it's it's not a life that is unmixed with success and and uh, tremendous decisions and and unshakable faith, is it? <laughs> it's a life that's it's a life that has both its low moments and its high points. Okay, it's a it's a life and it's a life in which he often stumbles. 
in which he often makes serious mistakes and he lives with the consequences of those mistakes. But it's also a life that's accompanied with some really remarkable uh, blessings and triumphs. The encounter with God at Bethel, his first time through Bethel, remarkable story. His, his wrestling with God at Peniel on his way back the night before he encounters Esau. Uh, uh, his reunion with Joseph in, in, uh, in Egypt. So there are the low points and there are high points. But, but I think one of the things that it seems that the Lord is doing for us as we reach the end, the conclusion of Jacob's life, is he wants us to think of he wants us to think of the spe- spectacular end of Joseph's life, the glory of the end of Joseph's life, because he just achieves this this end where he's where he's speaking repeatedly, speaking prophetically by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about about the about future events in the life of his people that are going to happen hundreds and in some cases thousands of years later. And he's speaking prophetically of the ultimate redemption that comes through the coming of Shiloh. And and so there's this glorious end that we have of the life of Jacob. And it's like the Lord is saying to us, when you think back of Jacob, think about his end. Don't just think about all the problems. Don't think about all the failures. But think about how God has brought him to this glorious finish. And he really does finish with a crescendo, doesn't he? And, like a king. Yeah, he really does. He finishes like a king. And it's such a different picture of Jacob than we have in those first quarreling, struggling years of jealousy and competition with his brother and all that animosity and hatred that's floating around in the family. And God overcomes that by His grace. God overcomes that by His providential working in the life of Jacob and in the life of his family. And, and, and it's, it's just a wonderful way to end the story. It's a wonderful way to end the story. And so, so I think that's part of what God is doing here is He's saying, hey, this is how I want you to remember Jacob. Really good. I was kind yeah. of thinking... Maybe symbolic sense. Every time he left, like the first time he left, he's by himself. Mm-hmm. He comes back with his family and entourage. Uh-huh. Um, he goes down by, with his family, but then he comes back with all the Egyptians. All of Egypt. So it's kind of like every time he uh, had to leave the country with some degree of risk, God was always with him. And when he came back, God had always blessed him. Is that not a picture for us of when he comes back again? He's going to bring all the nations to Jerusalem. Spectacular, isn't it? Well, so that's, that's one, one reason why I think the Holy Spirit may have elaborated on this narrative so much. The other thing is, throughout the entire book of Genesis, what have we continually done to try to kind of understand the meaning and the significance of Genesis? What have we continually tried to do uh, to, to get perspective and understand Genesis? That's such a vague question. I'm not going to get the answer I'm fishing for here. But give me a shot here. We have to understand what the purpose 
for Abraham was to be the blessing bearer and to pass that along. Okay, okay. That helped us understand what was happening in the Okay. That, no, but we'll get to that one. Uh, one. One of the keys to understanding the book of Genesis is remembering by whom it was written, when it was written, and to and for whom it was written, right? For whom was the book of Genesis originally written? Israel. Pardon? Israel? When? In the desert. In the wilderness, okay? So here you have these two million people who are out there in the desert, out there in the wilderness, having just come out of Egypt, having just spent 400 years enslaved to the Egyptians. And now they read this story. What is that? What does it make you think about? If you think about the, the Israelites reading this story of the Egyptians, having just come out of Egypt, having been enslaved to the Egyptians. Well, Egypt wasn't always our enemy. Okay, okay. It changes your perspective, doesn't it? It changes your perspective of Egypt. I mean, you've just suffered all these years under the under under the uh, abusive exploitation of the Egyptians, and you have this you have this conception of the Egyptians, the kind of people they are. Okay, and now you you recall this story. This story is brought to your mind, and you think of the of the honor and the the respect that has been given by the Egyptians and the love that the Egyptians had for your patriarch, it just changes your perspective. And maybe it makes you a little more willing to be gracious to them. And ultimately, God is going to tell Israel that they need to be gracious to the Egyptians. Ultimately, as you get on later in the story of redemption, God says, now listen, you've got to remember the Egyptians showed you hospitality and they showed you kindness and you need to treat them that way. It's very easy for us to draw a picture of someone that's not based on all the facts, isn't it? It's very easy for us to look at somebody or a group of people and to look at all the negative things and to, and to draw conclusions based on those negative things and not to look at the whole picture. And I'm just struck here by the fact that the Lord is making sure that the children of Israel get the whole picture and that they view the Egyptians with the whole picture in mind. Well, that's another reason. And then, and then the, the, uh, the third reason that kind of comes to my mind why the Lord did this, why He tells this story the way He does is because we have just now we are just now coming to the conclusion of the patriarchal era. Right? We have the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the conclusion of the patriarchal era. And as I was reflecting and I was just thinking, what a contrast it is from the beginning. Think about the beginning of the story. Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 11, the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, when we first began to look at the story of Abraham. And here's this 
solitary man. I say he's solitary, but of course he's a member of a family, has a father, and he has brothers, and he has nephews, and etc., etc., etc. But he really is solitary because he's kind of off there by himself, and he's the only one who believes in the God of the Bible among his whole family. He's the only one who believes in the God of the Bible and he's all by himself there in the land of Ur and then ultimately uh, the whole family moves up to Haran and he's up there in Haran uh, just with his family but it's just Abraham. That's all it is. It's Abraham and Sarah. And God comes to this lone, solitary man and speaks to him by himself and gives him these remarkable promises. He says, listen, you just leave your family, pack your bags, and set out. And I'll show you where to go. And if you do that, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he gives him these remarkable blessings. And Abraham, all by himself, with his wife Sarah, and his nephew Lot, sets out from the land of Haran, not knowing where he's going, and he travels until ultimately God takes him down to the land of Canaan and he gets there and God shows him the whole land and he says, okay, I'm going to give all this to you and I'm going to give it to your descendants. Meanwhile, he has no kids. This is the beginning of the, this is the, beginning of the patriarchal era. Now we come to the end. And we have this, another man coming to Canaan. <laughs> Jacob coming dead, <laughs> but being brought to Jake, being brought to Canaan to be buried, and he's being brought with all the majesty and all the pomp of the mightiest nation in the world. And he has all the majesty and all the pomp of the greatest people in the mightiest nation of the world paying him homage and honor. It's a remarkable picture, isn't it? What a transition has occurred over the last two or three hundred years from the beginning of the patriarchal era to the conclusion of the patriarchal era. How God has been faithfully working through all of these circumstances, all these stories we've looked at over the last couple of years as we've studied this whole period uh, in redemptive history. All these remarkable stories and all these remarkable people and the events of their lives. And through all of it, God was working to fulfill his promises to Abraham who took it all by faith. He took it all by faith. All he had was God's promise. All he had was God's word. And he stepped out in faith. And here now we reach, uh, we reach the conclusion of the patriarchal era and we see how it's all beginning to fall into place. There's still many mysteries yet to be resolved and this 400 years in Egypt still lies ahead but we can see how God is working to accomplish all of this. It's a tremendous encouragement to me not to despise the day of small things. Not to despise the days of Abraham when there's no evidence other than our faith. And when there's nothing to go on other than the promise of God. Because ultimately, God cannot lie and he fulfills his promises well uh, 
Another thing that strikes me moving on in this story is, uh, is Joseph's grief. Because last week we talked about, about face, facing death with faith. And we talked about Jacob's confidence in a resurrection. Jacob wanted to be buried uh, with Abraham and Isaac because he wants to come out of the grave with Abraham and Isaac. Okay, The whole idea of being gathered to his people. This idea that, that death is the beginning of, of something greater and something more fantastic than what we have gone through so far. And so there's this element of faith that's involved with death, but there's still grief. And faith does not eliminate grief. And that's the thing I see with Joseph. Here's this tremendous man of God, Joseph, a man of faith, a man who trusts God, but he's a man who still grieves deeply at his loss. Now, it is a... It is a temporary loss. It's not annihilation. Abraham, uh, uh, Jacob has not been annihilated. He's not, this is not the end of Jacob. But for Joseph, he knows he will never see Jacob again this side of the veil. And so it is a tremendous sense of loss. It's okay to grieve. We do not grieve as others who have no hope, Paul says. But we still grieve, don't we? And it's appropriate that we grieve because in spite of all that our world tries to tell us nowadays death is our enemy it is our greatest enemy and death is a product of the fall it is a product of the curse and we should never get to a point where we love it or where we think it's a good thing. That's not to say that when someone has struggled and fought against death for a long period of time and then finally, uh, finally they do die, that, that there can't be a sense of relief, that they're finally through with the struggle. I think that's appropriate. But death is our enemy. Don't ever forget it. Don't let anybody ever tell you it's something to be embraced and loved and appreciated. It is our foe. And it is the last enemy that Christ will vanquish. And so Joseph grieves for his father. And then they go through this whole embalming process and, and they, they go through this whole elaborate parade up to, uh, up to Canaan and they do this mourning in Canaan and the Canaanites look on and they're amazed by it and they're going, you know, boy, this, is, this is really a, a great mourning for the M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Great mourning for the Egyptians, and they're, they're impressed by because they don't even realize it's the Hebrews here who are really primarily the center of the mourning. <clears throat> but then what strikes me is when it's all done, said, and done, and when Jacob is finally buried there with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, what does Joseph do? He goes back to Egypt. Now, first of all, I was just thinking about this. Here is Joseph, who the last time, and I kind of painted this picture for you when we talked about it, who the last time he left Canaan, left in chains, drug behind a camel, 
down the Philistine highway. Looking off to the hills of Canaan and over those hills, thinking there was his father over those hills, and weeping and crying and thinking, I will never see my father again. And now he comes back for the first time to Canaan. He comes back to the home of his youth, the Oaks of Mamre, and sees them again uh, 40 some years later. Do the math, don't forget. He comes back and he sees what he never expected to see again, but he left. He left weeping because he was losing his father, and he comes back weeping because he has lost his father. But he's come back home. He's come to Canaan. He's come to Mamre, to Hebron. But now he's going to leave again, and he's going to go back to Egypt. Why? He gave his word, okay. Okay, his sense of responsibility. There's another reason. Well, okay, there's another reason, pretty compelling reason. The kids are there. <laughs> I don't know if Joseph's sons were there. They're grown by this point, but but uh, but the little children are there, and the flocks and the herds. So they all go back to Egypt. So obviously they made their decision. We're coming back to Egypt before they ever left, right? But what strikes me here is it was God's will they go back to Egypt. And had they stayed in Canaan, they would have been running ahead of God. It was not time to go back to Canaan. And had they said, well, listen, God's promised us this land and, you know, we have these promises and everything, so let's just stay. This is it. If they'd done so, they would have been out of the will of God because they would have been running ahead of God. Fast forward 430 years. Now they're out in the wilderness. And the wilderness gets pretty nasty. It gets pretty unpleasant. And what do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. And God says no. Had they gone back to Egypt 430 years later, they would have been disobeying God. Because now he was saying, no, you belong in Canaan, not in Egypt. 400 years earlier, he's saying you belong in Egypt, not in Canaan. And as I thought about that, as I was meditating on that yesterday, I was just thinking, boy, isn't that the life of faith? The life of faith is constantly a struggle of knowing when not to run ahead of God. And the flip side is learning not to drag my feet when God is leading me out. And we've all faced both of those situations, haven't we? When, when we've thought, you know, well, I'm going to, you know, this is my opportunity, this is my chance, I need to grab this while I can. And God's saying, no, this is not the time. And then there are times when we find ourselves in a situation where God is saying, it's time for you to pack your bags and move and don't look back. And we get out there and boy, that desert gets awful dry and awful hot. And we can't understand why we're out here. And we can't understand why God's allowing us to suffer like this. 
and Egypt starts to look pretty good. And God says, that is not my place for you. I've called you out of that place. And, and as I thought about that, I thought, God, I need your wisdom. To know when I'm running ahead. And I need your wisdom to know when I'm dragging my feet. I need your guidance in my life. And I need the faith to be where you want me to be when you want me to be there. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on and look at uh, the rest of the chapter.